2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we finished 1 Corinthians last Sunday, uh, and we're moving into 2 Corinthians today. So we'll continue uh, to hear Paul, the Apostle Paul's words to the church at Corinth. Uh, the two letters are very different. There's some it's a little bit of overlap, same recipients, but the, the, themes, the themes of the letters are different. Uh, and so as we, as we think about 2 Corinthians, some time has passed since 1 Corinthians was written. It seems that during that time, uh, we will find that uh, Paul uh, is writing from Ephesus. And uh, after he sent this letter, he seemed to have gotten word or somehow... Uh, realized he needed to make a quick trip. He had, we saw last week that he was thinking about going up and around through, through Asia, Macedonia, and down. And it seems that he made uh, an emergency trip uh, across. It was a painful trip, as he will say in chapter 2, uh, to go. And, and, he, and, and it, it, was, it was a difficult time. There was conflict there in that. And so he went back to Ephesus, and he seems to have written another letter in between that he calls a letter of tears, a sorrowful and severe letter. Uh, and then he has, has now made his way, has gone on that trip up and around. Uh, and it seems to be writing this letter from Macedonia as he's on his way to Corinth and has gotten word from Titus, who carried that severe letter that the Corinthians have shown repentance and seek peace with Paul. And so he's writing, uh, enjoy, we will find out in this letter, actually. But as we start today, we hear him writing from a place of pain. Um, of affliction and suffering and the comfort that God gives. And so I want to read verses 1 through 11 for us this morning. If you would, please stand with me if you're able, out of love and respect for God's Word, as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort." For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. And He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Beloved, this is God's Word. What do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, 
but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us as we consider God's word together. Oh, Father in heaven, we praise again your glorious name. We thank you that you, O Lord, mighty and glorious and eternal in the heavens, have been kind enough to condescend and reveal yourself to us, your creatures, in your word, that we might know who you are, that we might know what it means for our lives. O Lord, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to believe the truth of who you are, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts. May it be a balm to the hurting souls in our midst today. May it actually spur those of us who may be experiencing joy at the moment to help those who are in despair. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Paul begins uh, this letter, as I've already noted, uh, in a heavy but hopeful manner. (laughs) This first topic of discussion in this letter is affliction and suffering and the comfort that God alone can give in the midst of that affliction and suffering. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 here, the greeting that Paul gives are pretty standard for Paul's letters. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. We've already seen that in 1 Corinthians and in other letters of Paul. He names himself. He reminds them he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, a messenger of Christ Jesus. He has a special office of apostle and the authority that comes with it. He reminds them it's by the will of God. It's not by his own will. It's not by their will. It's not by any other human's will, but by the will of God that he has been made an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells them that Timothy is back with them. Remember in 1 Corinthians, we said Timothy was going, to, he was going to, to see the Corinthians. He's back, and now Sosthenes had helped with 1 Corinthians. Now Timothy is present with him, helping him write 2 Corinthians. He gives the address to the church of God that is at Corinth. So, the, so again, the saints who are there at Corinth and, all, and also for those in the surrounding region. Achaia is the region that Corinth is in, coming down there off of Macedonia toward the sea. And of course, the standard greeting for Paul is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he prays grace and peace from the Lord for his recipients. But then as he gets into the meat of this letter, he actually does something that's uncommon amongst Paul's letters. If you've studied Paul's letters and read through them, most, in most of them, after he says grace and peace to you, he, he gives thanks. You notice that? Usually after he says grace and peace to you, he says, I thank my God for you and for the things that God has been doing in you and through you and around you. But he skips the thanksgiving in this letter. And he goes immediately into uh, suffering and affliction and the comfort that God gives in the midst of it. And in fact, in the verses that I read for us this morning, the, the, the words either affliction or suffering come up eight times. The word comfort comes up ten times. This is the theme of these 11 verses that we have read together. You may have felt it while we're reading it. Uh, Comfort, 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 affliction, suffering. And we can see why in verses 8 and 9, can't we? Look at that again. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction 
we experienced in Asia. Asia is over on the other side of the sea uh, where Ephesus is. So that's the region where, where he has this affliction. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. We don't know. Paul doesn't tell us what this affliction is. He doesn't give us the details of it. Maybe persecution, maybe sickness. Uh, we don't know, but it's, it's a, a heavy affliction. And that word, even just that word affliction, it's, it's stronger than the word suffering. That word for affliction carries in it the connotation of being crushed. He says we were so utterly burdened. We were so weighed down. We were so, we were so crushed into the ground by whatever this circumstance was that we thought we'd been given the sentence of death. We thought this is it. This is the last one. <laughs> the Lord has said it's over. That's how deep the suffering and affliction that Paul is talking about is. And so stop there for a moment. And I just wonder... If some of us in this room know that feeling, you, you have felt the feeling of the elephant on your chest, as it were, the crushing burden of life, the crushing burden of sickness, the crushing burden of, 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 of a broken marriage, the crushing burden of abuse by parents or by someone else that had authority over you, the crushing burden of not being able to pay this month's uh, mortgage or rent, wondering where food is coming from. I wonder if you know that affliction, that being so utterly burdened that you despair of life itself. Some of you may be there right now. You probably come here with a good strong face on and a smile and, and, and 20 I'm fines. <laughs> but in reality, you despair of life. It's so bad you don't know how you can come out of it. It's so bad that you can't see that it would ever get better. And I imagine that if that's not you at the moment, some of you have been there. Most of us, in fact, probably have been there at some point. You know, if something was so crushing that we felt like we'd been given the sentence of death. And if you haven't had that, we live in a fallen world. And you probably will at some point in your life. And so it's good to know what God says you do in the midst of a crushing burden. And you probably know someone, if it's not you right now, who's going through this. So trying to say this passage is for all of us. As Paul says, I, the apostle, am so weighed down with this burden that I thought that I was done. We all have suffering and affliction. We are surrounded by people who have suffering and affliction. And so we need to know what to do in the midst of suffering and affliction. We need to know how to help each other in the midst of suffering and affliction. That's what this text does for us. Paul shows us three things 
that help us in the midst of suffering and affliction of this kind. He tells us first that we are to look to God and remember who he is. He tells us second that we are to know that our suffering always has a purpose. It is never in vain. And third, that we are to share in suffering with one another. So the first thing we see here is that we should look to God and remember who he is in the midst of suffering. We should help our loved ones and our friends and those around us who are suffering to look to God and remember who he is. And what does Paul tell us about who God is in the midst of this? The first thing he tells us is that he is our father. Look back at verse two. Grace to you and peace from God, our father. And, and don't run over the word God. Sometimes we're so familiar with that word. And, and we know who God is and we speed past it. But, but stop for a moment and say when, when Paul says that he is an apostle by the will of God, when he says that the Corinthians are the church of God, when he says that God is our father, who is he talking about? Who is God? God is Yahweh. God is the God of creation, the God who spoke the universe into existence. The God who before that simply existed. The God who told Moses at the burning bush, Moses, what shall, who should I tell them you are? And he says, I am that I am. Right. He says, I simply am. I have no beginning and I have no end. He says, I am the very core of being. I, ha- I am dependent on no one. We, we begin by thinking about how great and mighty our God is. We begin by saying, who is God? God is the I am that I am. He has no beginning and no end. He's not dependent on anything for his life or for his wisdom or for his, his character. He is simply God And he is a God so powerful that he created a universe that we can't find the end of. (laughs) And he holds it all together. He keeps it going. It is all held together in his hands. He is a God who is sovereign over every every minuscule particle that is in this whole universe and, and has decided what they will do. Now and forever from eternity past. He is that big. He is that marvelous. He is, he is that wonderful. He's almighty, all-knowing, all-wise, always and everywhere present God. And we call him Father. <laughs> this great and mighty one, Paul says, is our Father. And listen, Paul is not talking about creation here. He's not saying all of humankind are the children of God because God created them. That's not what he means. Not all of mankind does not call God Father. He is saying that by his grace and through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, He has called us his beloved children. He has adopted us into his family. He has said, I love you and you are mine and I am yours. 
and I am working good in all of your circumstances, right? He is saying, I am what a father should be to you. I love you. I care about every detail of your life. I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. This great God, right? You, gotta, you put the two together in the midst of suffering and affliction. And listen, we have to learn this in the better times so that we remember it in the times of suffering and affliction. But in the times of suffering and affliction, we say there is a God. And he is, he is so big. And he is so mighty and there is nothing he doesn't know. And he's perfect in his wisdom and he's good in all of his actions. And that great God says, you're mine and and I love you. And nothing is outside of my plan or my control. I have you here on purpose. And the reason that's good news and the reason that doesn't make us doubt God is because he is good, is because there is no shadow of evil or turning in him, is because he is eternally knows the end from the beginning and he has mapped it all out. And this is exactly what you need right now. That is why we cry out, God God is our Father. That is why we cry out, Our Father. Oh, Father. He is our Father. He loves us. And He has us exactly where He wants us to be right now for our good. And that is a great comfort. He is, he is our Father, but... But Paul adds to that, doesn't he, in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. He is the Father of mercies. He's the source of the mercies in our lives. He is a Father who is characterized by mercy. For For some of you, I am blessed in this. For some of you, those two words don't go together. You don't know what father who is merciful means because your father wasn't merciful, but was hard and unloving. God is not that. God is the father of mercies. He is a merciful and compassionate God. This takes me directly back to uh, Exodus 34. If you're in the adult Sunday school class, you already looked at this this morning, but here's another reminder for you. Moses on Mount Sinai after the golden calf incident, he has interceded. He has, uh, the Lord has said, okay, yes, I will go with you. And Moses says to him, show me your glory. And God says, I will pass before you. You can't see me. You're hiding a rock. But I will pass before you and I will proclaim my name. And when he passes before The name he proclaims is the Lord, the Lord, right? Yahweh, Yahweh, I am that I am, I am that I am. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, when God reveals himself, when God says, this is my name, when God says, this is who I am, he begins with merciful and gracious. 
Isn't that, isn't that amazing? That this great and powerful, holy, 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 perfectly righteous God, he begins with, I am merciful and gracious. I am slow to anger and I abound in steadfast love. Yes, he gets to his justice. He will not clear the guilty. He gets there. But he starts with, at the very core of who he is, what he wants us to know first is, I am the father of mercy. <laughs> I am a compassionate. God is echoed in the psalm that we sang together. Uh, psalm 103 uh, you know, begins with this wonderful worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle go down a little bit verse 8 the Lord is merciful and gracious right here David picks up that name from Exodus the Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love he will not always chide nor will he keep his anger forever he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him as far as the east is from the west so far does he remove our transgressions from us and listen as a father shows compassion to his children so the lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. One of the hardest things, I think, to remember and to know in the midst of despair, when you're in the dark night of the soul, when life is crushing, is that God sees this, and he knows it, and he cares. That he hasn't forgotten you. He's not rejecting you. He's not saying, you, you know, you're getting what you deserve. But in fact, he's looking on you with compassion because he knows that you are dust. He knows that you are weak. And he's looking upon you with mercy. And isn't it wonderful that as God proclaims himself, Merciful and compassionate and bounding and steadfast love. We hear here very clearly the echoes of Christ, don't we, in this psalm. God forgives all our iniquity. He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. How is it that that can be said of a God who is perfectly just? How is it that that can be said of a God who is looking upon those who have rebelled against him and deserve his eternal wrath? How is it that God can say, I won't deal with you according to your iniquities. I won't repay you for your sins. In fact, I'm going to remove them as far as the east is from the west. He, if he simply said, I'll just throw them away, that is not just. That is not holy. That is not righteous. God cannot do that. But what has God done? In his eternal love, he has given his son who had no sin and who had no iniquity, who deserved no wrath from God, 
And he has laid our, our sins and our iniquities upon him so that his wrath might be poured out upon Christ at the cross. And so that in Christ, in Christ alone, our sins can be thrown as far as the east is from the west from us. In, as we are in Christ alone, covered in his blood, can, can God say, I will not deal with you according to your iniquity or repay you according to your sin." In Christ alone, he can say, isn't that a fascinating back in, 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 in Exodus 34, when God reveals himself, he says, I am, I am merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, but I don't clear the guilty. And we say, well, then it's no good for us because I'm guilty. But because of Christ, he hasn't cleared the guilty. He has taken our guilt so that he could be merciful and gracious to us. Right, and so as we hear God is the Father of mercies, we hear Jesus Christ has come. He, the Father, has sent Christ to bear our sins in his great mercy, in his great grace. That, that beginning there of verse 3 echoes, should remind us of another passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It's there in the front of your bulletin. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The exact same words, but this time it goes in a different direction, kind of. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things in earth, right? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's why I can say Exodus 34 and Psalm 103 is talking about Jesus, because how could he say that to the Israelites before Christ came? How can God say to to his people, Israel, before Christ has even come, I am merciful and I don't clear the guilty. I will not deal with you according to your sins and iniquities because because the Lord chose before, before he created the earth, he chose to be merciful to those his people and to send his son to die for our sins so that, so that those in Israel who, who believed and were, who were truly God's people were looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ, which would make it so that God could say, I won't deal with you according to your sins and repay you according to your iniquities. And we look back now upon the sacrifice of Christ and say, God doesn't deal with me according to my iniquities. And he doesn't repay me according to my sins because in Christ I have the redemption of my sins by his blood because God chose me before the foundation of the world in love. Friends, one of the most important ideas that must be straight in our mind is that Jesus did not die so that God would love us. Jesus died because God loves us. Jesus came because God loves us not so that God can love us. And why do I say all that in the midst of a a sermon on comfort and affliction and suffering? 
Because there is no greater comfort than knowing that Christ has taken my sin. There is no greater comfort than knowing that God looks on me with compassion and mercy, that, that God will not deal with me according to my sins, that he has removed them as far as the east is from the west. There's no greater comfort. That's why God is the God of all comfort, because he has done this for us in Jesus Christ. And friends, if that sounds like a platitude to you, if that sounds like, okay, but yeah, I know that's true, but this still is unbearable. I'm afraid you don't understand the reality of your sin. Because the reality of your sin is you deserve eternal torment. You deserve to be crushed for real now and forever by a just God because you have rebelled against him. But he, (laughs) he is kind and merciful and gracious, and he has done away with that punishment in Christ Jesus for you. And there is no greater news in the world. There is nothing more comforting than to look and say, my father is a father of mercy, and he has done this for me. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, God giving his own son for the forgiveness of our sins is our proof that his love for us cannot stop. If God has given his very son for you, his love cannot be removed from you. That's the very proof that we know that God is our father and that he loves us and that he knows what is happening and it is for our good and he will bring it through us. Bring, I'm sorry, bring us through it. Perhaps into glory. I'm not telling you for sure that you won't die in this affliction. But I am telling you that the end will be good. And it will be God's glory. And you will be with him. Right? What he has done for us in Christ Jesus is our great comfort. For it tells us that he loves us. And he knows. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. And so as we find ourselves enduring affliction, tribulation, pain, suffering, the hatred of the world whatever that may look like for you today or for those that you're trying to encourage today or any point in your life, first of all, look to, the, look to God and remember who he is. He is this great God and he is your father and he loves you. And he has you right where you are right now on purpose. And it is the very best thing for his glory and your good. And that kind of leads into the second point, the second thing that we need to remember, that we need to know in the midst of suffering, and that is that our suffering always has a purpose. Our suffering always has a purpose because God is sovereign, as we've already been talking about and seeing uh, this morning, that, that, that we must remember that nothing that crosses our path is outside of God's eternal plan or outside of his sovereign control. Nothing. He is not the author of sin, and yet he has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. There's a tension there, but the scripture reveals it to us, and it's true, so that we can know it's not an accident. Right? That's the point. It's not to say, you know, not to make you think God is malicious or that God does bad things. It's to make you say, whatever you're in is not an accident. 
It's not in vain. It is what God has for you because he is sovereign and he has a purpose in it. Now, one of the difficult things about this is we don't always see all of the purposes, especially not immediately. (laughs) Sometimes we're fortunate to see them later in life. We don't always see them. But Paul reveals to us here two purposes for affliction and suffering that are always true for the Christian. Always true. The first one is that he's teaching us to rely on him and not ourselves. Look back at verses 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Right, Paul sees that, that our affliction, our suffering is always meant to drive us to the Lord. It is always meant to drive us to rely upon the Lord, to go to him in humble dependence and, and plead with him for help, for strength, to know that he is our rock and our refuge. He is our strong tower. The problem is, friends, and, 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 and some of us are old enough to have been, been beat up by this to know that in our sinfulness, we become prideful, or we are prideful, and, and, and we try to live in our own strength. We try to live in our own wisdom. We try to live in our own reserves to bear up under whatever the burden is. In fact, we don't just try. We demand it, don't we? I am independent. I can do this. I won't let a soul know that I am burdened in this way. But I will put on a strong face, and I will show that I can do this. And God says, your affliction, your suffering, your persecution, your pain, whatever it may be, it is always meant to let you know, no, you can't. You are dust and I am God and you need me every moment of every day. Again, it's not a capricious thing. It's a loving thing. It's the father saying, no, you actually can't do this. But I love you, and so come to me, and I will help you to do this. It's God saying, you need me. It is what is best for you. And, and, and sometimes he has to drive us to that through pain and through affliction. And one of the applications for, uh, to, uh, for us to that, friends, and I, and I say this in, in love and from experience, run to him quickly. Because in his love, he'll turn up the heat if he needs to. And, and, and some of us know that truth. When we, when we arch our back and we stiffen our necks and we say, I can do this on my own, God will tell us that we can't. And so it's just a, it's a friendly encouragement. Run to him quickly. In, in, in adversity and in affliction. But also the main point to bring out there is to know, to know that this is, this is purpose in your pain, that you would turn to the Lord, that he and his love has you there so that you would know that he is there and that he is your refuge and he is your strong tower. But then there's a second purpose that's always there in our suffering. It is that as we are comforted by the Lord, we can comfort others. 
And so look at verse 4. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Friends, your affliction and, and, and knowing the Father of mercies in it and, and knowing his comfort in Christ Jesus in it, it always serves the purpose of helping the next person who is facing affliction and pain and despair. God puts us through our circumstances so that he could bring somebody along later that we can say, I've been there and God is good and he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. And he will bring you through this in his good time and in his good purpose. Friends, your suffering is always for the good of others. Um, you know, God never lets us be selfish, does he? <laughs> never lets us be totally turned, totally turned in on ourselves, but he gives us, he gives us his grace so that we can show it to others. He says this here in verse six, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. <laughs> if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. He's telling the Corinthians, I know that I'm going through this affliction so that I could tell you I went through it and that God was with me in it and he gave me strength in Christ, right? Comfort with strength. Give me strength in Christ in it and brought me through it and he will do the same for you. And so my question, one of my questions for you, beloved, is are you hoarding your affliction and the comfort that God has given you. Perhaps it's in your pride because you're worried about what people will think about you if they know that you had despair. Perhaps it's in your pride because you're afraid that people, what they might think of you if they knew that you struggled so much with anxiety or with depression. Or perhaps you're worried that people will, will think that, that the Lord is against you. I don't know what it might be, but there are many reasons that we in our selfishness and in our pride keep these things to ourselves. And we go through things and God brings us through them. And, and, and then we wall ourselves off. When God tells us very plainly here that your suffering is for the good of these people sitting around you. Because we all suffer and we all go through pain. Don't, don't hoard it. Share it. Share the comfort that you get from it. You, let it be used so that you could say to somebody, I've been through this. And the, the, see, the problem with that is you've got to be vulnerable and say, I've been through this. But it allows you to come alongside the next person who's going through it and be God's source, his... his um, Nah, source is the wrong word. His instrument of comfort for that other person. And so, friends, also, if you are in the midst of suffering, don't turn in on yourself. But, but let the people around you know so that they can say, you'll probably be surprised by the person saying, I've been there <laughs> and God brought me through it and he helped me through it. 
And so we know that our, our pain has purpose. This is one of the purposes so that we could help others down the road. And so as we find ourselves in, in affliction and in suffering, we, we look to God, we remember who he is. We, 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 we see that there, he is sovereign. Therefore, there's, there's purpose in our suffering. And the last point is that we would share, that we would share our suffering. Um, Paul tells us, I mean, well, that word share, again, is another word that comes up often in this text. We are never alone in our suffering. We are never meant to be alone in our suffering. And we should never let another person around us suffer alone. We are meant to share in our sufferings. And, and that's, that's, that's based upon the fact that we, that we actually share our suffering with Christ first. Look at verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Isaiah, the Lord through Isaiah, told us that Jesus Christ was the man of sorrows. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. When we suffer, we identify with Christ, our suffering Savior. There is a sense in which Paul here is talking about suffering for the name of Christ, actually suffering persecution because of our faithfulness to Christ. But that's not the only way in which this is true. Christ is our faithful high priest who knows our weakness. And as we suffer... We identify with him, our suffering Savior, and we can know that he identifies with us in our suffering. He knows our weakness. He knows our pain. He knows our suffering. And he says that he is a faithful high priest who sits at God's right hand, making prayer for us, interceding for us. And he beckons us to come boldly to his throne of grace to share our suffering with Christ, right? To go before him and bear our hearts to share our suffering with Christ because he knows, because he gets it, because he understands, because he has lived through the suffering of being a human in this fallen world. And so he hears us and he intercedes with the Lord on our behalf, but we also share in each other's suffering and comfort. I already read verse, uh, verses, verse 6. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. In verse 7, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you share in our sufferings. You also will share in our comfort. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, we may not be experiencing the exact same affliction, but we are all afflicted and we are all suffering and we share that suffering with one another. We share the comfort that we have in Christ with one another. We are the body of Christ, not multiple bodies of Christ, the body of Christ. When one suffers, we all suffer. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. That is God's intention for the body of Christ. It is not his intention that we would suffer alone, but that we would bear one another's burdens, that we would bear our burdens to one another, 
and that we would then suffer together, as it were, that we would walk with one another in suffering and offer the comfort of the, the God who is sovereign over these things and loves us and is merciful and what Christ has done for you. And so another difficult question, are you hiding your sorrows? Are you hiding your sorrows? Are you, are you putting up that, that rock wall? Because you can do it. <laughs> because you don't want people to know that you're struggling. Or would you be willing to go to a loved one in this room and say, I am despairing. I am hurting. And, and allow the other person in. And the other difficult question is, are you refusing to engage in the afflictions of others around you? Because sometimes we say, I don't want to get wrapped up in that. That's going to be awkward. That's going to be hard. That's going to take time. And we selfishly, we see it. People try to hide it, but you, you, see, you see the little bit of rubble coming off the wall, right? We, we, we get a hint of it. And we tend to back away and say, I'm not going there. And I wonder if we, because God has been so merciful for us, because Christ entered into our suffering, if we would be willing to enter into the suffering of one another and build one another up with the comfort of the gospel and the truth of who God is. And of course, the last thing he tells us here is that we must pray for one another. Look at verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. I think it's wonderful that Paul doesn't say, would you please pray for me? He says, you will pray for me. You must pray for me. On my apostolic authority, I say, you must pray. Why? All right, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Sometimes as good Calvinistic Reformed people, we, we want to deny this reality and we say, we can't change God, and so prayer is just about changing my heart. It's true that prayer directs us to the Lord, but God is so sovereign that he works through secondary means and he tells us he works through the prayers of his people. And so he says, pray for one another in your suffering and God will work through your prayers to bring comfort to the people around you. He also the more you pray for one another, the more likely you are to actually come together and talk about stuff, right? But he is saying God works through the prayers of his people. We must be a praying people. We must be on our knees before the Lord, making intercession for the afflictions and the suffering of the people around us. And so may knowing, may knowing that this great God who can do everything like that <laughs> says, I will work through you and your faithfulness to prayer. May that spur us on to rejoice in the opportunity to pray for one another. And so, friends, if you find yourself in the throes of affliction and suffering today, look to your great God who says, I am your God and you are my people. I am your Father and you are my beloved child. Look to the comfort Look for comfort to the mercies that he has shown you in Christ 
Jesus. Know that whatever you are going through now is not on accident and it is not in vain, but it has a purpose. It is meant to draw you to your great God in humble dependence, and it is meant to make you a tool to be used to help others in the future. Share. Don't hide. Share in one another's sufferings. And beloved, if it's not you at this moment, do this for other people. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us in this.